Well, we left off on uh, page eight, and we were looking at this idea of the faith. And so uh, we've introduced the two viewpoints on it. And of course, we talked about uh, the faith has been described before as a body of doctrine that tells you how to overcome your spiritual enemies, right? And then you have the other side of it. And I, I've cited and shouted out our brother Tim, who will be seeing here uh, pretty soon, uh, but he did a lot of work at a conference back in 2014 uh, to really zero in on a lot of these occurrences, and what he came out with was that, uh, again, that the, uh, the faith relates to the promises that have been made, and so we have promises all throughout the New Testament that the believer has a chance to place our faith in throughout the course of our Christian lives, and I really think uh, he gets a little bit closer and I think it's not to disparage any work that anyone's done I think uh, when you you take something first one person gets a a vision of what it should be and then someone else takes up the mantle and they they get more information and you continue to develop it that way so hopefully uh, maybe uh, 20-30 years from now somebody else will maybe Troy will come up with a a new spin on it (laughs) who knows Uh, but we're on page eight and uh, we had broken down what Uh, the faith is in general and given that uh, general description of it and then we started looking at some of the occurrences and so we saw the faith as it relates to the mystery of Christ now uh, this we looked at last week and remember these mysteries are pointing out some truth that was not disclosed previously and so uh, that one with the Christ is the fact that As a result of us having the indwelling Christ, we have the ability to show forth the glory of God. Uh, And this was something that was not previously known, obviously, because they didn't have the indwelling Christ before. And so Paul revealed this uh, to these believers. Um, We broke down what a mystery actually is and gave you a couple verses for it. But uh, there are several all throughout the New Testament. We even uh, looked at one yesterday in uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 25, where it again tells you this is a mystery. It's something that was not revealed before, but is now being made known uh, to the saints. Uh, and then we want to go over here to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5. And we see this reiteration in the following context right after Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26 in this mystery of the Christ. We see the reiteration of the stabilization that comes from the faith. And so Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5. So now, as you think back, he's giving you uh, the understanding that as a result of us directing our minds to who we are in Christ, that the indwelling Christ is able to be shown out through you. And that's obviously going to provide stability to your Christian life. But let's pick it up in verse one. He says, for I would not that you knew or excuse me, I would not. He says it often. There's always a not there here. It's I would or I desire that you knew what great conflict I have for you. And this is to the Colossians and for those uh, that are at Laodicea and for as many as I have not seen in the flesh uh, or uh, seen my face in the flesh. And so you have these group of churches right up here. You have uh, uh, the Coloss- church at Colossae. You have uh, the Laodicean church and when I'm missing, um, not Ephesus, 
Who's the third one? Is it Ephesus? In the Lycus Valley there? I got Laodicea. I'm missing the other one. <laughs> My mind's not working uh, correctly. It might be Ephesus. Um, and so you have these, yeah, Ephesus is a sister's church to Colossians. So you have these four, three churches that are right in this small area together, and none of them having met Paul. He discloses it right here. In verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all uh, riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledging, uh, and really here this acknowledgement uh, comes from the word for a full experiential knowledge of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasure of treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And uh, this I say, lest any man beguile or any man should beguile you with enticing words. And so first he discloses this mystery. Uh, concerning uh, Christ and the Father and how they are both operating together within the believer. Uh, we don't want to go too deeply into that one as it's not our focus. But verse 5, it says, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding uh, in your order, joying and beholding your order in the steadfastness, of your faith in Christ. Now you see that your faith there and it's going to kind of veil and I meant to put this with these other ones but it kind of fits together with this grouping we have here in Colossians. We're going to look at these uh, occurrences where you see the faith concerning you or belonging to you. Now you don't read that out you see your there right but if you're looking at the Greek it would literally be the faith belonging to you. Or in English, we could just simply say your. Uh, but it emphasizes this faith as it relates to individual people. And you living out the faith and looking at the whole picture of it in your Christian life. And so he goes on to say um, the faith or, or the steadfastness of your uh, faith in Christ or the faith concerning you in Christ. And so steadfastness is a word that uh, speaks to the firmness of your Ability to live out this Christian life with a reliance upon the promises that have been made to you. And how much are you going to be able to relate to those things God has said in his word are true? Are you going to be able to place faith in those things? He goes on in verse six, as you uh, have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. And so this gets right to where the rubber meets the road. Uh, we, uh, Pastor and I like to listen to J. Vernon McGee a lot of times. Uh, he's an interesting guy if you've ever listened to him. And uh, he knows where I'm going with this. What is J. Vernon McGee's favorite statement concerning actually living out what you're reading from the Word? He says, put it in shoe leather. It's right where the rubber meets the road as far as walking out your salvation. And so he gets into that in verse 6 as he says, As you therefore have received uh, Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. And so this is pointing directly at your position and you being able to appropriate in any given situation who you are in Christ and the impact that that has. Verse 7, he continues on. Rooted and built up where? In him. And so if we're seeing these situations, we talked about peace yesterday, right, in church and the peace that we can have, how we can actively pursue peace. You're not going to be able to pursue peace when you're seeing situations as just what's going on here on the earth, right? 
it's not going to happen. You're going to get so wrapped up in, in whatever it is, whatever situations it is, that you're going to be distracted from the peace that God provides. But when our minds are redirected to where we are in Christ, and it's not that you're just sitting here walking around <laughs> feeling through the air and your mind is just wrapped up with who you are in Christ, but rather than focusing on that individual situation, we're directing our minds to where God has uh, uh, made us into someone new. And what did you receive? You receive uh, a stability that comes along with that, a firmness that comes along with it. And so you can then be in verse seven, rooted and built up in him, uh, established this word for being uh, stabilized by what? The faith. And so again, you living out this individual representation of the faith as it relates to you, a reliance upon the promises that God has made in every individual situation causes stability in your walk. As you have uh, been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving, beware, verse 8, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after uh, Christ. And so what are, what are men going to try to do? Uh, well, what were men doing in this time? And what do men try to do today? They try to distract you from your focus that's in the Christ. They don't want you, and, and certainly Satan doesn't want you, and he's going to use men to try to get your mind redirected off of the promises that God has made to us. And yet it's our uh, responsibility to direct our mind back. In verse 9 he says, For in him, and looking to position again. Now, I, I say it all the time and give this advice to you guys when you're reading through, and I don't know if you guys mark up your Bibles. Uh, as you can see, uh, I don't know if you can see mine is very well marked up here. But when I see these in hymns, in Christ, in whom, those are all indications of positional truth that's being taught to you. Underline it, highlight it, do whatever you do with it, make a note of it. These are very important truths as you see them uh, pointed out. He says, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now we talked about, uh, I believe a couple weeks ago, the ability of us to show forth the life of Jesus Christ, because what? He's dwelling within us. And so if all the fullness of the Godhead bodily is in him and we're in him and by us directing our minds to us being in him, he can then in turn be seen out through us. That fullness is coming out through us in display. And so uh, this is how godliness is shown in verse 10. And you are complete where in him. Uh, which is the head, or really you could say who is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the uncircumcision uh, made without hands, in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And you could, you could really go on here because he continues on with this positional truth that relates to who we are in Christ. In verse 12 he says, co-buried with him, by baptism, wherein also you are co-risen with him uh, through the faith of the operation of God who uh, hath raised him from the dead uh, or out from dead ones. Uh, and so that takes us to our, ne our next point. So I don't want to go past that, but uh, just to catch us up here in our notes, you see that uh, adherence to the faith uh, was stated to provide order 
to the life of the saint. And so back in verse five, uh, this word for taxes gives us the idea of uh, and I'm going to roll with my definition here of uh, used of an established and known manner of procedure or operation that is uh, or that can be seen or adhered to by an individual. And so uh, you see this, this structure in that word taxes, which was translated uh, your order in verse five. And it's coming directly from uh, who you are in Christ. Top of page nine. We see this word used in a couple of other places. And I want to go to these real quick just to um, and I shouldn't have <laughs> zoomed so quickly through um, um, those verses that we were in. But looking back in verse five and comparing this word for order. We see it used over in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14 and verse 10. And this is used concerning the conduct of the church. And so remember, he says there, do everything how? Reckless and within chaos within the church. There should be fighting and uh, disorder over everything you decide to do. No, he says, do everything decently and in order. Remember, God is not an author of of chaos. But back in First uh, Corinthians chapter 14 and verse verse 10, we see this and pick it up at uh, verse six. Now here um, and you'll remember if you go back to chapter 13 and really all the way back to uh, chapter 12, you see this difficulty that's going on within the Corinthian church. Why? Because they're having all of this confusion concerning spiritual gifts. And there there shouldn't be ever any confusion concerning the use of your spiritual gifts. God has given these gifts. He's uh, empowering you to use them through the power of the Holy Spirit, theoretically, if you're using them correctly. And so there should never be any disorder. There shouldn't be any uh, place where where these things aren't all fitting into a structure. And so uh, he's going to end up saying how they should be using these spiritual gifts within the church. But in verse six, he says, now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, uh, what shall it profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine and even even things without life? giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they have a distinction of sound, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? And so if these sounds that are coming from these instruments didn't have different sounds, you would think they were the same thing if they were just sounding and making noise, right? This is what he's saying here. In verse 8, for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? So likewise you shall... uh, Ye, except you utter by tongue uh, words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. Uh, Verse 10, there it may be so many different kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, uh, Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the power of the voice, meaning is is a word for power. I have a note there in my Bible, excuse me. The meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so, ye, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Um, I'm forgetting where I'm supposed to read read to there. Um, 
supposed to be in verse 10. It went too far. And I picked the wrong chapter. seeing that word for order there must have maybe it was uh, 10 14 huh. I have to come back to that one uh, but we have another one over in um, in Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 6 and speaking of Melchizedek um, and describing the priestly ministry of him. Go with me over there to Hebrews chapter 5. Now remember as you're thinking about this gentleman Mel Melchizedek. And uh, I know when I was younger me and my dad would have discussions over who exactly this guy was. And... Uh, to me, it seemed like it must have been the pre-incarnate son, but <laughs> my dad, he didn't think so. I've not uh, come to any conclusion about who I think this guy is. Perhaps we'll never know on this side of, uh, of glory. And we have these believers here uh, to thank for it because they weren't in the proper place spiritually to receive any information concerning this guy. Uh, but Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is talking about it here and addressing it. And pick it up in verse 5. He says, so also, uh, well, I'll go back a little bit and we'll pick it up in verse 1. He says, for every uh, high priest taken uh, from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought as, the as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor <clears throat> excuse me, upon himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. And so uh, this ability to go before God and offer on behalf of people, you see it throughout Scripture, uh, and mostly in the uh, when dealing with the Jews, but those people that offered, they had to offer from themselves as well, right? There was uh, no priest that they had that was was without sin and didn't need to offer. Verse five it says, "So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, uh, thou art my son. Today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place." Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so you see there, there's this structure of priesthood that goes down. And this is a short one as you're looking at this, but from uh, Melchizedek down to uh, the Lord. And so he was a, a high priest after this order. And so uh, this idea of order, you can go uh, to all of those other occurrences. We don't want to spend too much of our time there. But as you go back over to chapter or verse five of Colossians chapter two, you see, it's uh, this idea of having some established way of operation. And so as he says uh, in his speaking of, of these saints and saying um, in verse 5, For though I 
be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order. And so the way that they were able to function in the church, and this all goes back to what? Their standard operation by the faith, a reliance upon the promises of God. Now, um, <clears throat> what I will say here is just an aside. Uh, you guys have a lot of people that you don't know by face, right? And this is kind of the relationship that Paul had there. You haven't met a lot of the people out there in Oregon, but you've heard about them through us or they've heard about you through us. And so you have this kind of knowledge concerning them. And this is what Paul is speaking into here. He had never met these people to the face, but he'd received reports from people that he trusted to know enough to know that these people were walking uh, in the faith. And so he uh, uh, says that here. Now, uh, moving on from that, we see adherence uh, to the faith was stated to be uh, or to provide stability. And so this word for stability we talked about uh, a minute ago, but it's the resulting immovability from being securely placed in a firm foundation. Now, it's the opposite of wavering. Now, we've looked at uh, other places in Scripture, um, thinking of one in, in one of the Timothys, and I can't, can't pull it here. But uh, what does Paul tell Timothy? Not to be bandied about by every wind of doctrine. And you see people that are like that today. Uh, they, they, and I know people that are like that and have talked to people that are like that and finally got grounded in truth. But they said before the time that they were able to hear the truth, they were going around to every different kind of church and people were just telling them all kinds of stuff. I don't want to put my, my brother on blast, but I would say I knew one brother who went to this legalistic church and he was he was uh, he went all the way with it. Now, they said that you should be sacrificing on behalf of your sins. So what did he do? He would sacrifice rabbits on behalf of his, his sins. Whenever he, whenever he did something, he would offer on behalf of himself and his family. And it, he thought it the right thing to do. <laughs> these, these people taught him like he's raising these rabbits. He said, hey, I don't have anything else to sacrifice. <laughs> I'll sacrifice these rabbits. Uh, and so what, what happens when you're not grounded in truth? You can get caught up in a lot of stuff. And honestly, that is more respectable than someone is sitting here pretending like they're under law and not adhering to what the law truly says. At least he was offering on behalf of his sins. <laughs> These other people, oh, that was a mistake. I'll, I don't have to offer on behalf of that or, or adhere to that part of it. That was for the Jews, but the, this other part is for me. No, you, you go all the way with whatever you're going to go with. There's also the guy uh, Pastor Dave dealt with, and he was uh, ran across him at a game, and the guy was missing an arm. And he said, well, <laughs> what happened to your arm? And he told him the story that he... He had done some sin that uh, involved his hand. And he's read in the Gospels. It says, if your right hand offends you, uh, cut it off. And so what did he do? He took the, the axe to his arm. And Hey, you're gonna, they're going to go all the way with it or you're not. But it can be hurtful to your health <laughs> and to the health of rabbits to not be grounded in truth. It's, it's very important. And so what is Paul talking about here? He's saying that these believers are stabilized. They're not being pushed about by every wind of doctrine. They're grounded in what's true. And a lot of this has to do with their understanding of the faith and the promises that God has made. Uh, and so you see that. 
Uh, this word for stability, uh, we can see in other places. Uh, and again, this idea of being immovable. Uh, go with me over to Second Timothy chapter two and verse nineteen, and we see the firmness of a, of, of the believer is derived from uh, God's seal of those that belong to Him. Second Timothy chapter two and verse nineteen. And Paul is giving uh, Timothy some instruction here. Uh, and, and we know at the end of this book is, is going to be his departure. So these are, as it were, his closing uh, words to him. And in verse 15, he says, uh, study. And really, the, this word for study is, is not really that. It, it doesn't mean the same thing today that it would have meant back then. But it has the idea of being hasty, uh, being taking up every opportunity that you have to do what? To show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun and uh, profane, uh, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now I've said before, it doesn't help to have been on Paul's bad list when he was writing these uh, epistles to people because he would just call people out. Right <laughs> Now these people's names live on <laughs> throughout eternity because <laughs> they weren't doing the right thing at the time. And so he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus, why? In verse 18, he tells you, who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection has passed already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from unrighteousness. Uh, and so this idea of standing sure is standing firm. There's nothing that is going to be able to be done to remove you from the firm foundation that God has placed you on. And as long as we're relating to who we are in Christ, you have that, that sureness, that firmness, uh, that you can't be moved. It's, it's unwaverable, as it were. Uh, we also see over in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 9, that the firmness of the believer's resistance can be found uh, from the faith. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 9 And let's pick it up at verse 5, where he says, Likewise, ye younger, uh, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, uh, all of you uh, be subject unto one another, and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the might, under the mighty hand of God, that, thou, that he may exalt you in due time. Um, this is a hard one for many people in our society today, right? We have a lot of people that are very proud walking around on this planet of ours, and they have a, a higher opinion probably than other people have of them. And even when other people have high opinions of them, it makes them even more big-headed. And so it's harder even in the church. You have some people that don't want to submit themselves under other people. And what does God say here? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It's not for us to exalt ourselves on this earth. 
is to understand that he's going to exalt us all together in Christ in due time. And that time is not far off. Verse seven, casting all your care. We talked about this word for care yesterday, having the idea of anxiety, those anxious times that can come to you when things aren't going the way that you expected them to. Uh, uh, Cast your care or your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. And really here, these are two different words. It's funny how they they translate uh, different words in the same context the same way. But this word has more the idea of it matters to him. It is a a big deal. You you matter to him. Uh, the, The things of you matter to him. And so it matters to him about you. Verse eight, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast. And so this idea here of Satan is he's walking around seeking out each person or who, whoever is, looks like they're uh, palpable to be eaten up. He says uh, he's looking for you. And so what is your posture? What should you be doing in this time that Satan is roaming about or knowing as we're walking in this Christian life that he's walking about. Well, we talked about it before. A big key to overcoming Satan is recognition. Having your head in the game and understanding that he's out there and looking for ways that he can attack you. And what you do, uh, what I've learned over the course of my Christian life, is you have to know the ways that he's previously attacked you. And if you don't know, he's going <laughs> to wallop you out of, out of nowhere. And he's always on the prowl for it. Uh, And so whom resist steadfast in or really, I would say, by the faith. And so as you're living based upon the factual promises of God and as it relates to Satan, we can go right over to Ephesians chapter six and verse 10. And it begins to tell you how to overcome or defeat Satan there. And so you have sure promises in Scripture of how to overcome Satan. We don't have to keep getting slapped around by him all the time. We don't have to continue to lose that battle. Uh, and so it says, uh, whom resist uh, steadfast in the faith, knowing that uh, the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Uh, and so you see uh, this promise made to you here. Verse 10, we'll continue to read on. It says, but uh, God, the God of all grace hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And so there's a lot of collateral damage that comes along with satanic attacks sometime. And the promise that you see here from scripture is that God can stabilize you and get you back to where you need to be, even if you succumb to this attack from Satan. Uh, even if uh, you overcome the attack from Satan, but there's some effects of it from, for you. He can establish and settle you back in who you are in Christ. It's simply up to you to direct your mind where it needs to be. And he's able to do it. Um, Our next point and looking there uh, to verse 12, where we uh, had kind of read to last time, we see the faith in operation producing the indwelling Christ. And so going back to Colossians chapter two and verse 12, remember that in chapter one, In verse 27, we saw this mystery concerning the indwelling Christ. Now, how is that seen out in operation? Well, we see 
as we're living out these Christian lives, we, we are able to appropriate the things that God has already said are true. So pick it up in verse 11. It says, in whom uh, also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Co-buried. Now, it just says buried there. And what you won't see unless you look over into your interlinear, if you have one, is that this is a a co-burial is what we see over in Romans chapter six. It's not just uh, that he was buried. It's that we were intimately together buried with him. And there are very huge implications to the believer that come as a result of that. And so he says, co-buried with him, uh, you could say in or by baptism. And so what happened when we believe the facts of the gospel? We talked about it yesterday. Something took place that you didn't see that we can place faith in that it happened. We understand uh, by going and doing physical baptism that this is a representation of what took place spiritually. That the Holy Spirit took us out of who we were in the world, placed us into Christ. And the method that that took place by is spirit baptism. All assorted in that is that we were buried together with him. And so we died together, intimately together with him. We were buried and we were raised out from dead ones. And so when you come up out of that water, you're a new person, right? And it's... Uh, graphically demonstrating what spiritually took place there. And so he says, co-buried with him in baptism, wherein wherein also you are uh, co-raised. And so even here it it says just risen, but it has the idea of risen uh, together, co-risen together through the faith of of the operation of God who hath uh, raised him out from dead ones. And so the faith as it pertains to the operation of God. And so what are we doing when we say that this took place? We're putting our reliance and our faith in the fact that what God says in his word is true happened. I don't know that any of us were uh, of the mind, of the spiritual mind, to be able to see any of this taking place, right? You didn't see the Holy Spirit come and snatch your spirit and place you into Christ. You didn't see that take place. And so there's a measure of faith that we're placing in the promise that God has made that this actually happened. And not only that it actually happened when we believe the facts of the gospel, that it carries implications over into how we're living right now. And that there's power that we're able to get from it and that we're able to live out uh, God's quality of life as a result. Now, don't let me go too fast uh, past my notes. I have a bad habit of looking at the verse and then I look away from my notes and I forget what I have over there. And so we see this idea of being co-buried by spirit baptism. Uh, This word for buried with uh, has that idea of of simply that. And here's my uh, definition, literally, of a burial within a tomb or grave with another. Figuratively, it is of the identification of the believer spiritually together with the physical burial of Jesus Christ on behalf of us uh, through, uh, that doesn't make sense, through uh, what the Father counts to be true. So I have too many words. Uh, I need an editor. I'll, I'll uh, claim what Brother Don said there yesterday. His editor is not good. Well, you're looking at him. <laughs> Bad editor. Uh, but this idea that here that God is counting these things to be true. And what I always tell all of the people that I speak to, go back to Romans chapter 4. 
and it gives you a clear indication of how God can call something that is not physically true for us to be true in his reckoning. Why? Because he's the God of the universe and he can call those things that aren't as though they were. Did he not speak everything that you see into existence in a better form than what you see it right now? And so if we trust that, we can trust that God is able to call these things concerning Christ true for us. And so then point B, we see that we are co-risen together with Christ through the working of the faith from God. And so the initial faith from for salvation is seen in operation with that of the present tense, as we spoke about. And the father ultimately raises us out from dead ones together. Now, the next thing we want to look at is over in First Timothy, chapter three and verse nine. And we see that there is a mystery concerning the faith. And we have one deacon uh, on trial in the house back there, Brother Carl. <laughs> and so uh, he has to be very acquainted with uh, this in operation. And as you're looking at these requirements for the deacon, it's very interesting. The pastor and I have had discussions about this before. There's actually a lot more requirements here for the deacon than there are for the pastor teacher. And it's a very interesting thing as you look at it. But uh, understanding that this deacon is going to be in charge of a lot of the operation within the church. And so there's a, a bigger responsibility placed on him. Now, uh, of course, the pastor has the obligation and uh, his operation to God and to, to getting the word right. And there's a huge importance placed on that. Uh, but as you just strictly look at these things that the church should be looking at when they're placing people into these uh, positions, I certainly want to pay attention to this one. And so in verse eight, pick it up there and we'll read the context and then kind of go through the notes. It says, likewise, must the deacons be grave? This idea of grave is the idea of being serious about things that matter. Uh, you shouldn't have a, a deacon that's a, a class clown that's always <laughs> joking all the time. And not that the deacon can't make any jokes, but at times when you should be serious, you would think that your deacon is, is not going to be uh, uh, running away with, <laughs> with jokes and that kind of thing. Uh, he says, not double-tongued. And so the idea of speaking one thing over here and then going over here and speaking another, he should be of one message. Uh, not given to much wine. He shouldn't be a, a drunkard or an alcoholic. Not greedy for filthy lucre. This idea of uh, being in it for money. Now, certainly, as you have a deacon that's going to be around the, the money of the church and handling operations, you don't want a deacon that is greedy for filthy lucre. You don't want to set people up for failure in that regard. In verse 9, he says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience and let these also first be proved. Then uh, let them use the office of the deacon uh, being found blameless. Uh, and he goes on, he has more <laughs> requirements there for the deacon and for his wife as well uh, that they don't have for the pastor teacher. Uh, but this idea we want to stop at is that one uh, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. This is a huge requirement for the deacon. And I want to say that it has a, an idea that this deacon knows how to live out the Christian life correctly. Right. If you know how to live out the Christian life correctly, you're going to be reliant upon the promises that God has made 
and as such, you're going to be setting an example for those that are under you. Well, not under you, but that you're working with as a deacon. Uh, and also, uh, furthermore, you're going to be operating the business of the church in the proper way. And these things are very important as it relates to the deacon. And so we see the context speaks of the responsibilities of one in the office of deacon. And in the contents, we see that the deacon should be a model of how to operate based on the promises of God due to the level of visibility he has in the business of the church. Now, imagine you have a, a deacon that's uh, not taking any of this stuff seriously. You know, you've you got a guy that's just drunk all the time and coming into church or uh, any of these other things that were named out. Is that going to be a good representation for the church? Is that going to show other believers how a model of how you should be conducting yourselves? And a certain level of this is for the pastor teacher as well. Uh, but you see this mystery of the faith is going to keep that deacon where he's relying upon the promises of God. So he's going to be in the proper place uh, spiritually in how he conducts himself. And so you see the mystery of the faith is uh, held in a pure conscience or should be held in a pure conscience. Uh, this idea of a pure conscience comes from our word Catharizzo having the idea of, uh, of clean and the word for conscience, which has the idea of, of pulling together understanding with those things that you uh, know. And so the activity of the individual matching up with the given expectation in a way that uh, does not compromise who that believer is in Christ. And so as you think about it, this is exactly what you want out of your deacons. Uh, and as you're you're considering them now, we have our uh, vote coming up for <laughs> the deacons that have been on trial. I'm sure they've all uh, done this well. And so we will uh, hopefully be confirming uh, two more uh, to add to our deacons. Uh, but we see the next point. The faith uh, was something that was not previously known prior to grace. As you look at the mystery of the faith. And so this is not something that was uh, pointed out during Christ's earthly ministry. It's not even something that they knew prior to this uh, revelation that's given uh, by Paul here to Timothy. And so this is very important to understand. Um, we have also uh, the next point, the faith relates to individual as it relates to individuals. I did not expect to get through uh, this quickly. So I'm going to pull out the backup. You guys will be left without a couple notes, but I'll get them to you next week. Don't worry. Um, but we see uh, the faith as it relates to individuals. And we talked about this a little bit earlier in these occurrences where you see uh, your faith uh, and you'll see it translated that way. But really, if you were to literally translate it from the Greek, it would say the faith can uh, belong to or, or pertaining to you. And I would say uh they translate it that way most of the time because they're thinking of it as a, a possession uh, as it relates to faith. But go with me over to First Thessalonians chapter 3. And we see Timothy was sent by Paul to provide comfort to the Thessalonians with regard to their individual faith. And so First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. We can pick it up in verse one. There's several times it occurs in this context, and we're just going to uh, read through these, and then we'll uh, jump into a little discussion 
and we'll probably end here. I might read read on to the next one, but um, verse uh, one of chapter three says, "Wherefore, when I could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone." Now remember what happened with Paul in this time. He's being chased <laughs> by these individuals all the way down through this area, and so he's chased out of Thessalonians. He goes into the next next city. He's chased from there. He ends up all the way, I believe, in Athens, where he's writing this letter from. Uh, and he wanted to check on these Thessalonian saints because he was only there for a short period of time. And so he didn't have a lot of time to make sure that the doctrine that he was teaching to them was taking hold. So he sent Timothy up there to check on them. And what does he find? He finds that these believers that had just a short amount of time to spend with him are actually flourishing. <laughs> the information that he shared with them, they've taken it and run with it. And so we see that here. In verse 2 it says, And sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Why? Why did he send them? To establish you. And so this idea of, of stabilizing or bringing stability and to comfort you concerning your faith or the faith belonging to you. Or you could even say as it pertains to you. And so uh, these individuals have the opportunity because they've had information shared with them to live out the faith in real time. To rely upon the promises that God has made. Uh, and it's it's. Uh, Unbelievable to think that Paul could have been there for such a short amount of time and shared with them so much as pertinent to their Christian life. But you see it here in verse three. It says that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves. Know that we were appointed thereunto. And so what is he giving him? We know in scripture that it's told us that in this life you will suffer persecution. Uh, and so this is a, a direct promise, one of the negative promises that we're going to see uh, from God. And yet he's given us all that we need to handle it. In verse four, for verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should uh, suffer tribulation, even as it has come to pass. And, you know, for this cause, when we, I could no longer forbear it, I sent to know your faith or the faith pertaining to you. Lest by uh, some means the tempter um, have tempted you and our labor uh, be in vain. And so what is what is Paul's concern here? His concern is that he's only dealt with these believers a short amount of time. He shared information with them, but has not had the opportunity to see if they're able to live it out. And so what is he worried about? He's worried that they saw this persecution that happened to him and they're going to be afraid. Right. The natural reaction, they're not going to live out what they've, what they've learned. Uh, but watch what happens in verse 6. But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith, or the faith as it pertains to you, and charity, and that you uh, have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith or the faith as it pertains to you. These individuals, what Paul was expecting was to see, hey, these guys are shaken up, right? 
because they've seen what's happened to me. These people are still there in town. Maybe they're still giving him a hard time. And what does he find when he sends Timothy? He finds people that are stabilized, that are not shaken up. Why? Because they're living in operation, the faith. And so we see that uh, promise that's made uh, from God pertinent to them. And we can continue to read on, I believe, to verse 10 is the last occurrence. He says in verse, uh, I'll leave off in verse 7, he says, therefore, um, actually verse 8, I'm sorry. He says, for now uh, we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can, be rent, can we render to God again for you? Uh, for all the joy wherewith we joy uh, for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect or adjust. That word for uh, perfect has the idea of adjusting uh, that which is lacking in your faith or the faith as it pertains to you. Now, God himself and our father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord Jesus or the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. And so, hey, these believers, even in spite of a short time together with Paul. Even at the face of having seen persecution. Now, a lot of us have been saved a long time. <laughs> How would we react if persecution broke out in America? We certainly have all the promises of God in, in, in his word. So I'm thinking that we would all uh, we would do just fine. But, <laughs> but uh, maybe some wouldn't. <laughs> no, I think this group would be fine, but maybe some extended out. I don't know. <laughs> I can't speak for them. Um, but what you see here is this group, just in a short amount of time, when faced with uh, situations that certainly could have caused them anxiety and taken away their peace, what did they do? They reacted as to who they were in Christ and the opportunity for this faith to be seen out through them uh, is exposed for Paul. And what does it do? Your life does not only impact you. Your life and the way that you live it can be an encouragement to other people. And Paul, in the midst of being shaken up because of the persecution he was suffering and worrying about these other saints, he's comforted himself because he knows that these uh, that he have taught here, they're doing it the right way. And so uh, you see him uh, able to be comforted and able to direct his mind back that, hey, the stuff that I'm doing is not for nothing. There's uh, good things that are happening. Uh, then the last one, we'll, well, let's just close out. We'll come back there next week. This is a perfect place to end because it's the end of uh, page 9 and you guys don't have page 10. So I'll get that one for you next week and we'll uh, pick up there and continue on.